our approach in January is to really take a different approach to venture, one that is grounded in access and transparency, which frankly, traditional venture is not known for, uh, to, to make what was previously an opaque and exclusive industry much more accessible and open um, because we believe that the next generation of returns is going to be driven by a much more diverse set of founders. Hey, it's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Jen Noondorfer, today's guest. Uh, Jen is the managing partner and co-founder of January Ventures, which is a venture capital firm that specifically invests in underrepresented people, women, people of color. Um, Jen has a super interesting sort of career journey. Uh, She grew up in Wellesley, Mass. She went to Harvard, uh, moved to San Francisco, lived in San Francisco, Los Angeles. She worked for 21st Century Fox and YouTube out in LA. She opened up um, her own venture capital fund and accelerator in Cleveland, Ohio, while her husband, a serial entrepreneur, led his own business in Ohio. And then just a couple of years ago, she and her family moved back to Boston. She started January Ventures, and that's what she's up to today. She's going to tell us about all of this on the podcast. I'm really excited to share this with the community. Also, teaser, Jen is also starting a podcast called Ready Set, which specifically focuses on talking to founders about that period of time when they're like getting a business off the ground and dealing with all the challenges that lie in that in that critical period. Um, and so she's just she's just wonderful. I'm really, really excited to introduce her to a lot of folks because I think she's she's really f- flown under the radar, but just an incredible sort of like operator oriented um, venture capitalist, just just doing wonderful things for the Boston community. And um, if anyone has sort of suggestions um, specifically on founders that might be helpful uh, for Jen to speak to about sort of like early stage challenges, um, she's looking for, for suggestions right now. So without further ado, we'll get to the podcast. Enjoy. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Shavidio here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with January Ventures co-founder, Jennifer Noondorfer. Hey, Jen, how's it going? Hi, Zach. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, uh, really excited to connect. Really appreciate um, the time. you spent. We spent a little time together yesterday, just, just actually meeting for the first time. But this is kind of a continuation of our first meeting. So folks get to hear us do that, uh, an extension of that live. Um, and just for listeners, it's always great. Um, I've gotten feedback from listeners in the past when I haven't done this, that it's really helpful to just kind of give a sense of like who you are in in the sort of Boston innovation world right now, what your job is and in like sort of what you're up to at January Ventures. So could you just give a top line to me and to listeners with regards to what you're, what you're up to today? 
Yeah, I'm happy to do that and uh, really appreciate the chance actually to introduce myself because although I'm a Boston native, I actually moved back about a year and a half ago or I guess now almost two years ago. So I feel like I'm I'm still reorienting myself to the Boston Innovation community uh, and really look forward to connecting with folks that are listening. So for, for those that don't know, I am the co-founder and managing partner at January Ventures, which is an early stage venture fund focused on pre-seed and seed stage investments, primarily in B2B software companies. But the twist is that, you know, we're really focused on underrepresented founders. And so you know, we take a, a pretty different approach to venture um, to be the fund of choice for those founders at the earliest stage and sort of plug them into the traditional venture ecosystem uh, going forward. I love it. That's Super tight. And I want to double click on you reorienting yourself into Boston over the last almost two years. Where did you come from and what sort of what was different about Boston when you came back? You got back before the pandemic. So I, I guess we can kind of put the pandemic aside for for a moment and maybe just, you know, you can speak from a general perspective or from an innovation sort of startup community perspective. I'm just curious how it compares from where you were and also how it had changed maybe uh, because you had boomeranged back. That's a great question, Zach. So for context, I grew up in Boston, went to undergrad at Harvard, and then moved away from Boston for the next 15 or so years. Uh, was in New York, then San Francisco, LA, and then in the Midwest, in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm happy to share more uh, about sort of what brought me to all of those different places. But, you know, while I was on the West Coast, um, was an operator in the startup world. And so was at YouTube and 21st Century Fox building digital media businesses. Um, and then had been on the investing side for eight years before moving back to Boston. And part of the reason I was really excited to come back in my role as an investor is, you know, what I noticed had changed from, it changed in Boston from, you know, when I left, which was early 2000s to, you know, coming back, which was summer of 2019. And I think, you know, obviously Boston has long had such a rich tech and sort of startup culture around robotics and biotech. But what I think, you know, what I've noticed in Boston in the last 20 years is a real diversification of the tech ecosystem. And so, you know, we, we actually don't invest in life sciences um, or biotech. We don't do a lot in robotics. But what I see is this sort of burgeoning uh, tech ecosystem around things like B2B and enterprise software. There's a bit of consumer, right? We see a lot in fintech. We're seeing more in sort of consumer healthcare. Um, and those are the areas where we really get excited. And so, you know, for me, seeing that that change begin to start in Boston, I was really excited to sort of come back um, and begin making investments here. The other thing that I would say is I've noticed a real shift uh, among the higher education institutions here in Boston. So I did my MBA at Stanford. And one of the things that, you know, Stanford is just so well known for and has really cracked the code is the fluidity between the Stanford campus and the venture capital ecosystem. They are mm -hmm. basically one in the same. And I have seen, you know, and I can speak to Harvard, which is the school that I went to, but I've seen it at, you know, obviously at, at MIT, at Babson, at, you know, BC, BU, Northeastern, Tufts, um, you know, sort of all of the, the institutions here is just much more of a focus on entrepreneurship and uh, much more interaction with sort of the, the, the ecosystem in Boston, right? So that, that 
cross-pollination between the educational institutions and the you know, venture capitalists and all of the supporting um, institutions around you know, founders in the city, um, there seems to be much more collaboration. And, and frankly, the strength of the founders coming out of those schools seems to be you know, d- just exponentially different than when I was there. And that makes me really excited as an early stage investor, because frankly, I don't really care where the founders in our portfolio build their companies. But what I really focus on is meeting those founders first and being here in Boston with this sort of rich pipeline of talent and expertise. That's what gets me really excited. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I just a couple comments on that. Like I, I couldn't agree more. And and I'm excited. And shortly after this part of our conversation, we'll kind of go through your sort of where you grew up and how you kind of traveled around the country in some of your different roles. I particularly want to talk to you a bit about LA and I think some overlap we might have had and sort of like the YouTube sort of like innovation ecosystem there. Um, but but I want to double click on your comment about the universities around Boston. You know, obviously, like you have you know, the Harvards and the, and the BUs and, and the Babsons, like who have for pretty good while now been pretty well tethered to sort of like the venture, venture community and sort of, um, and, and, and continuing to, to, to generate, you know, MIT just feel like it's, at a, there was a point in time when I was working in Cambridge Innovation Center and it just seemed like CIC was tethered to MIT and it was like, it was just like a farm system for like entrepreneurs and and it's just, and it's just only blossomed more. And what I, what I love about what you said is that universities have only, you know, it's these institutions um, that are these universities closest to the city and that are most known have done a better job and they've set a higher bar for more universities and colleges in the Commonwealth. And, and for example, like I Mm. moved back from LA to Beverly, Massachusetts and I'm down the road from Endicott College. And when I moved back and I was surveying the landscape, I was like, oh, interesting. Endicott College has an angle center for entrepreneurship. And I just like showed up for some of their events. And I'm like, oh, wow, like Deirdre Sartorelli is like really fostering. Like they have this Spark Take event and they have these really viable startups coming out of Endicott. And I grew up in Massachusetts and and knew Endicott, but certainly didn't know Endicott. And Endicott historically is not known as an innovation school or a school that's sort of tethered to the venture um, community, but that's where they've driven themselves. In a lot of ways, they're um, they're mirroring the models of like, say, a Babson. And I love seeing that. And I love seeing sort of the state universities do the same thing. And I won't go on and on, but it's just, I, I think what's really neat about what you said and a byproduct of that is that it sets a higher standard. Um, for for institutions that are providing education to young people to um, not only expose them to the innovation economy, but actually have um, established pathways, you know, into venture, into entrepreneurship, into uh, working at startups. And I think that's a really, uh, that's something that I've noticed too. And and I think it bodes well for for us parents uh, that are raising, you know, children that will be going off to school in the next, you know, couple of decades. Yeah, I think that's right. And to follow up there, Zach, I think what I've seen, it, it, I think what you talked about, it really underscores one of the, the beliefs that I have and sort of the, the changes that I think has happened in the last two decades. You know, Silicon Valley used to be a place, and obviously it is still a place. Right. But I think more than anything today, Silicon Valley is actually sort of a mindset. Absolutely. And, um, 
what we've seen or what I've seen, right, having gone from living in, you know, Palo Alto and San Francisco, the heart of that, to then LA and then to the Midwest and now back to Boston, um, is that that mindset is alive and well and thriving outside of the the geographical bounds. Um, And so, you know, it is really exciting to see educational institutions and every geography and it's sort of, you know, every different type of um, institution beginning to really focus on entrepreneurship. And what's exciting to me is I think it, it really is evidence of the fact that the next great founders are going to come from such a broad uh, set of backgrounds and geographies and ethnicities and races and experiences and you know we don't really know where they're going to come from and they're getting this exposure in all of these institutions and you know I think to me as an investor it makes me excited because the set of founders just is starting to you know explode exponentially as we think of you know who's going to drive the next generation of venture capital returns yeah, right on. And, and you know, you, I, I watched you, you, you did a wonderful job on how I built this with Guy Raz and I checked that out. And, and you also hit on this a little bit in the, in the really thoughtful um, answers you provided to like the pre-podcast questionnaire that we did ahead of this discussion. But just, there is, a, there's, there's several, there's, there's plenty. You have to go to your silver linings playbook to get through a pandemic, but there's, there's a silver line into the pandemic that is, it really did further accelerate, um, the Silicon Valley as a mindset and not a place and Boston's innovation economy or, or any sort of like cluster of innovation, um, as a mindset or as a, you know, sort of a, you know, a, di- you know, more of a, um, you know, even a, a, a digital movement or, or a decentralized movement and not so, um, constricted to a geographic location. And I think in that you really democratize, um, the the pathways for certainly anyone, but un, certainly but but especially underrepresented people to develop startups, be tethered to you know even be, have a Silicon Valley mindset, and even tethered to aspects of Silicon Valley, but maybe live in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is one of many you know just you know burgeoning startup communities that has has really flourished in the last in the last several years, and I think that's. What's really exciting, um, I think for me, just as like a as a human, as like an American citizen, is that there's there's this decentralized um, innovation economy that's spreading more to more and more communities. To Richmond, Virginia, you know, obviously Austin, Texas, has been around for a while. I think Nashville's starting to get a bit of more tech infusion, and and uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. I don't know if I said that one already. Um, you know, like Savannah, Georgia. Like there's. There's a lot of interesting, you know, there's a lot of interesting things have been happening in Atlanta for a while, thanks to the sort of, um, you know, TNT, TVS, like headquarters there and like the Warner Media presence. Um, so I think what's really, that's what's really exciting too. And, and I think you really hit on on something there with regards to Silicon Valley as a mindset. Um, and if I could kind of shift off of, you know, mindset, and this is my way of doing it and th- and just, I'm curious and for, for me and for listeners, like, let's talk about your mindset as it developed as a, as a, as a young, as a young girl and then young woman, um, you know, growing up in Wellesley. So I'm, I'm curious, like, t- you know, t- tell, tell me a bit about your, your childhood. And in particular, like, I really loved, um, 
learning and a, a, a bit about some of the early jobs that you had because you you got your hustle on from an early age, I would say. Um, but yeah, just 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 talk a bit about your your upbringing and some of the things that you were sort of experiencing, some of the jobs that you had, and what started to sort of shape the mindset as you sort of headed toward uh, university. Yeah, happy to happy to go back to the early days. Um, yeah, you asked about some of my first jobs, and it's funny. My earliest memories are of a lot of dog sitting and babysitting. Um, I think the dog sitting was where I started before anyone, you know, when I was so young that no one really trusted me to take care of a child. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think as I mentioned in those notes, I'll never forget that feeling of earning my own money um, and. The, you know, it was just literally a couple of dollars to start, but it felt so liberating. Um, yeah. And it's funny, you know, I, I am a mother. I have two children. My son is six. My daughter is four. And, you know, it's, it's a discussion that my husband and I have all the time about, you know, how to, how to give them their first jobs and really give them that sense of empowerment and freedom and, and accomplishment when, you know, they do a job and they do it well and, you know, they're able to earn money doing it. Um, but, you know, my, in, in high school, I had a lot of service industry jobs. Uh, I started by washing dishes at a local bakery. I was, you know, at some point promoted to actually being able to work the cash register. Um, my, my, you know, in summer jobs, did a lot of uh, front desk check-in at the local pool, lots and lots of towel folding. Um, <laughs> and you know, lots of interactions with the families coming in and the parents and the members. And, um, you know, I think those jobs were so important because, you know, one, it was like none of it was glamorous work, but I enjoyed it. It was something to do. It kept me busy. It, you know, it, it allowed me to make money, but it also just really taught me um, the value of both customer service and how to treat other people. Yep. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that everyone should, you know, have some sort of service-based job, whether they're like waiting tables or checking people in, or um, actually one of my jobs that I forgot about until now, Zach, was actually at Babson College, they have an executive education center where they have, you know, big companies come in and, and do these um, sessions with their professors. And they, they have this, uh, they have a hotel there. And so I worked Every Saturday and Sunday in high school, I worked at the front desk there and had to wear this like awful uniform <laughs> complete with a poly, like a huge polyester blazer and a tie, yeah. um, like one of those awful sort of 80s ties, even though it wasn't the 80s. And, and it was just, it was fascinating, right? Because one, I was sort of seeing all of these executives come in, um, but also just really paying attention to how they acted and how they treated me and how I wanted to be in the future treating, you know, the, someone in my position. Um, so I just think all of that is just so character building. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's, that's interesting was actually my first internship in college, which, you know, I'd sort of say was like the first job that I gave a lot of thought to um, was with a female venture capitalist. So she happened to be a neighbor of mine and I had some sense of what she did. Uh, but I, I definitely got the job because she was my neighbor. Right. And, uh, it was the summer of 2000. So it was right, right at the height of the dot-com boom. I, you know, she, it was sort of before anyone emailed decks, they would you know literally send a hard copy of the deck. So I was 
sitting behind mounds and mounds of paper and reviewing them. And, you know, it wasn't that I wow. was actually making any sort of investment decision, but I thought, you know, every single noun.com, right? Uh, you know, pets.com, computermonitors.com is when anyone was doing a dot-com business. But wow. it just really opened my eyes to the world of venture capital. And I think what was so remarkable was this was 2000. That, you know, today, there are very few women in venture, you know, even fewer that run their own funds. And here I was in 2000 working for one of the very few women who had not only been a CEO of a venture-backed company, but then started her own venture capital fund. And so at the time, I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do at some point in my life. But I often reflect on it because I think at some, you know, at some level deep inside of my head, that seed was planted the yeah. venture capital was something I could do as a woman. And two, it was just this really interesting career. So the, the seed was planted early. That's great. I have a few follow-up questions here and, or, or, and comments. The first is, I, I, it's, it's a trend with guests on Boston Speaks Up that folks have worked in the service industry. And like it, my, it's, my wife and I have a similar mindset as, as it sounds like you and your husband probably do where like our daughter will work in the service industry. Like my, my wife and I have worked in restaurants, like I've bar backed, like, and my actually your cast register experience at the bakery spoke to me because I used to like, have you ever been to like a Bob stores? I, yeah. I, I used to work at Bob stores and was folding jeans in the men's department and making six seventy five an hour and was a friendly guy and was like, I got to get my way up to the cash register. And then eventually I like made my way to the, to the like customer service desk. Make, I remember when I got a big raise to $8 and 30 cents <laughs> and I was like dealing with all the problems people had returning and exchanging things at Bob's. And I was just like, cool. You just gotta, just got, you just gotta be, you just gotta be nice and accommodating. Like, all right, I can do this. And, um, there's so much out of the service industry jobs that really do, um, set you up for, you know, success in life. So couldn't, couldn't agree more there. Um, and it's interesting. We just had Ryan Durkin on, um, who who most recently was, was heading up product at Drizzly. And he was talking about how, like, he was a caddy in Andover. And he was like, he, he's like, I didn't quite know what everyone was always talking about, but people were always talking about business. Like when I was caddying, and it was just really helped. So mm-hmm. I was just thinking about your experience at that hotel at, at Babson and just just kind of like getting, you know, just sort of being around um, sort of, you know, folks that are, you know, movers, shakers, I think is is super, is super valuable. And then I, I guess, and then the last thing, and this is sort of a question, I'm curious, I mean, what, first of all, what an amazing opportunity, that rare experience that, you know, and I say rare because there, there are far too few women in venture to have that first, you know, internship, um, with a, with a female, um, VC. I'm just curious, like, have you stayed in touch or, or at that time? Did, did she open up to you about like, how, how hard was it for her in 2000 to be a female VC or was it not because she had, or was it more harder for her to be a founder first? And then because she had accomplished so much, she went into VC and like, just in general, like what, why is it, you know, that that was the case then and still is the case now that there's not enough women. And, and then if you even want to extend it, like not enough people of color, um, in, in venture. Zach, that is such a good question. So the short of it is I stayed in touch with, with her for a while. Um, she has now moved. And so unfortunately I haven't stayed in close touch with her now, although I, I am inspired by this conversation to reconnect with her. Nice. <laughs> you know, what, we, we really didn't have any discussion 
about how hard it was. And yeah. I think it sort of speaks one, you know, part of it, Zach, was I don't think I appreciated how hard it was. Um, I, you know, in a certain sense, I was in this little bubble where my first exposure to venture capital was at a fund with, you know, three partners, the founding partner who was a woman, and she'd also been a venture-backed CEO, I realized, like, that was not a typical view. So I think I was naive to the fact that the model I was seeing was, frankly, a unicorn model at the time, right? Right. Um, so I almost didn't even know to ask her. I, I also think at that point, no one was talking about women in venture capital, women in tech, Right. You know, frankly, the whole just sort of cultural conversation was very different. And so I imagine that for someone like Nina, the, the woman that I worked for, it it wasn't even a place that she let herself go. Do you, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't mm-hmm. the, the zeitgeist wasn't talking about how do we get more women into leadership in venture capital? How do we have more women that are actually deploying money? Um, and, you know, part of it, Zach, was that she made it look so easy. Mm, She, I mean, she is one of the, yeah, she's (laughs) amazingly smart. She was a technologist, right? So, you know, she was not only a female CEO, but, and and founder, but she was a technologist at a date when like many women weren't. And so she just knew her shit. And I, like, it didn't even occur to me that she was fighting this very uphill battle. Um, although, you know, I think today that would be a really interesting conversation to have with her now that I have more perspective. And now that I think yeah. you know, we're, we're at a point in our, in our cultural evolution where we're actually having that conversation. Yeah. Right on. I, I, I go, I always go, I go with sports analogies a lot cause I grew up playing sports and sports kept me on the straight and narrow a lot in my life. And I, so I, I similar to you, I, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, even 22, 23. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't seeing the world the same. Like you, it's just, you don't, you just gain perspective. There's certain things you just can't gain. You can't accelerate the perspective that you can gain in life. And so like when I would watch sports as a, you know, a teenager, or as even a 20, you know, young 20 year old, and I'd see a great athlete, you know, it's, you, know you see Michael Jordan, just like, you know, be, just be that elite. Um, I just accepted that like, well, he's just, he's just that good. And, and he's, you know, he, there's, there's nothing he faces that is a, is a struggle or a problem. And what it's interesting that the 36 year old in me, I can't like, I watch sports, but I can't watch sports without going on their Wikipedia page, finding out where they're from, like what they've been, because everyone's triumphed through so much, whatever their challenges have been, you know, they've, you know, it's just varying degrees. It's all relative, but it's interesting. Like the, 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 I've just learned more later in life to like ask the questions like, Oh, like what have they been through? And so I, like you, I actually have like a list of people and maybe this conversation will also motivate me of folks that I was around at a young age that really inspired me and they were great at what they did. Um, and I didn't necessarily like engage with them on a level like I'd like to. And I also would just like to express gratitude for them for what they did for me. So, you know, I think that just comes with, with, you know, maturing and gaining and gaining perspective. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much for that, for not identifying that at your, <laughs> at your young, at your young age. But Hey, if you do, if you do get to reconnect, let me know. Cause that would be such a cool, cool byproduct of this, of this conversation. Um, and, yeah, and then I, guess, I will. Yeah. Awesome. And then moving, kind of moving, um, 
along as as you had kind of walked us up to sort of like as you were entering college and you went you went to undergrad at, at Harvard. One of the things that I kind of asked you um, in the pre podcast uh, questionnaire was sort of like what you wanted to do, and you talked about maybe wanting to be a doctor, maybe wanting to be president. Um, talk a bit about like the you know the like what like the decision you made to go to Harvard, which I'm sure get like when you get into Harvard, I'm sure the decision isn't too hard, but then also what you, you know, what you thought were the pathways you might pursue and then talk about like how quickly when you were exposed to that, um, you know, that, that life on campus and, and, and sort of had your, um, the aperture on the land, you know, just widened how you sort of started to shift in the things that you, you know, thought you might pursue in life. Yeah, good question, Zach. So I, as as you had asked, like when I was little, I did want to be a doctor. Uh, I was fascinated by everything, you know, in sort of biology or medicine. I remember probably third third grade or so, maybe fourth, we did a sheep's eyeball dissection. And I brought mine home because I wanted to continue doing it. And you can imagine the look on my mom's face when I unloaded this half dissected sheep's eyeball from my backpack. Um, but she let me keep doing it and, you know, really indulged me. Uh, so, so that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, and, you know, the decision to go to Harvard was a bit of a convoluted one. I was 18 or, you know, 17 when you're applying. I thought I wanted to get as far away from my parents as I could. I had, you know, I said, like, let's go on a, a, a school trip to California. Um, and, you know, sort of fell in love with a lot of places out there, but really had no good reason for wanting to go out there other than just feeling like I needed distance from my parents who are wonderful, by the way. And I have a great relationship with them and did when I was 17. Um, but then a, a family friend of ours was coming to Boston to look at schools here. And uh, my mom, you know, asked me to come. We were, um, you know, kind of having a day in Boston and looked at some schools. And when I got to the Harvard campus, I realized that although I grew up you know, 15 miles east in Wellesley, um, I really had spent no time on the Harvard campus. And mm -hmm. it was just sort of one of those moments. And frankly, it probably could have been any campus, right? But there was something about that day, the tour guide, like just that yeah. feeling that I had being on the campus where I, it was like, I got the chills, right? And I felt like, gosh, this there's something about this place that gets me excited. Um, but then it was, you know, I think, if then it was sort of this, this lottery, right. I, you know, applied, did, did whatever I could to get in and, and really, you know, put a lot behind my application, but then had to wait. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, was lucky enough that I was accepted when I got to Harvard. Uh, it was, you know, coming from like a small public school to getting to Harvard, it was just eye opening at every single level. I didn't mm. know anyone at Harvard. I wasn't coming from, um, you know, some of these private schools or even some public schools that are just feeders to Harvard, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, people can turn to the upperclassmen that they know and say, you know, show me the ropes. I had no, no one to turn to. And that was fine, but it mm -hmm. was just like drinking from a fire hose at every single level, right? right. Academically, extracurricularly, socially. socially um, yeah. And, and it was exciting. It was disorienting, but you know, my, I think the way that I kind of grounded myself was with my classwork the first semester. So I took, um, 
four classes first semester, three were like 300 person plus lectures and one was a writing seminar. But so it was like, you know, again, going from a high school class of, you know, what are there like 20 kids in your, in, you know, in your classroom, right. To a lecture of 300 people. Um, And most of them were pre-med classes, but one of them was this class called justice taught by Michael Sandel. That is all about, um, I mean, to boil it down, it's like social theory and it, just really open, like talk about opening the aperture. It opened my aperture on just how people think, right? Like different schools of thoughts. And uh, it's all about sort of reasoning and um, how people would make decisions and where like morality and ethics lie. And it just like sent me down a whole new path. I left pre-med behind, um, ultimately majored in something called social studies, which uh the biggest complaint about the major is that like the name is so misleading and non-descriptive. I mean, I remember telling my parents I was going to major in social studies and they asked me like, didn't you do this every year in elementary school? Like (laughs) why why are you doing this in college? But it it was a mix of sort of politics, economics, and philosophy. And what, you know, the way that I talk about my experience at Harvard was that it opened my mind to just, people, experiences, um, you know, academic thought, uh, practical thought. And then it, it just, it changed the way that I thought. And so the, the sort of core of the social studies program is this class sophomore year where you read all of the social theorists. Um, and, you know, it starts with like Rousseau all the way to like Francis Fukuyama, who at that time was writing about the end of history, which, you know, clearly didn't happen. Um, but so it just really taught me how to think critically uh, and made me realize that, you know, while while medicine was interesting to me, I wanted to be doing something where things weren't so black or white. Um, and I wanted to be in, a, in fields that were a little bit messy. And mm. so um, I started to think about business and, you know, I had a few experiences, like my father was in business. I had this experience at the venture capital fund. Um, and, you know, started to feel like, ooh, I like business and I like this idea of sort of thinking through the problems and thinking through the opportunities and like trying to try, you know, I'm also a competitive person, right? So like trying to win at something. Um, and so that's what led me to business. I started my career right out of college in consulting, which I like into sort of the liberal arts of business and was exposed to a lot of different industries, a lot of different disciplines and figured out where I wanted to focus and what I liked. Awesome. I, I think of it like, um, I, I love the way you just described sort of like, for some people, they really like black and white, like they want medicine because it's black and white, or they pursue, say, coding because it's, you know, zeros and ones, right? It's very matter of fact. Um, I too, for similar reasons, it sounds like as you like love working in sort of the startup ecosystem, because it feels, I don't know if you would agree, it's in to put it in like crypto terms, it's like you're, you're contributing to the ledger of history. Like you are helping yeah, sort of co-author like the ledger of of what will be taught later on, and it and they could be successes or failures, and they can be a lot in between, um, and be you know subjectively you know argued over time. But you're there's something um, in the with with without certainty, like there's almost an excitement to it because you feel like you can play like a pretty significant role. 
Yeah. And, and Zach, that really resonates because, you know, I mentioned that right out of college, I was um, in consulting actually at a Boston based firm, although it was in the New York office, um, a company called Monitor Group uh, that was founded by Michael Porter um, and now is actually part of Deloitte. But when I got to Monitor, I quickly fell into um, this this new group that was all around, you know, it was sort of building the, the media practice at Monitor. And again, I graduated from college in 03. So this was mm-hmm. immediately after. Um, and it was in the early days of digital media. It was when every media company was trying to figure out how to use the internet. It was when you still needed a .edu email address to access Facebook. So I'll never yes. forget... Um, you know, leading a session with all of the editors in chief and sort of executive staff at Condé Nast. And they all said, you know, what is this thing, Facebook? And I walked them through and, you know, here I am, what, 24, walking all of these executives through my sister's Facebook account because I didn't dare show them mine. And they, they were just like slack jobs. You know, people will post these pictures and they're putting this content <laughs> up there. And, um, and so you know, I, what I was drawn to was exactly what you were saying, this feeling like I could just feel that there was some big shift going on, both you know at the, the sort of corporate strategic level and also the cultural level that I wanted to be a part of building. And it was also yeah. the only place in the firm where it paid not to have gray hair. And so, you know, I was lucky to sort of find my way there. And then that really paved the way for what I did with the rest of my career. Interesting. So, so talk about that a bit, because I'm, I'm interested in sort of what you did next and then how you made your way to, to LA and um, specifically your experience at, at 21st Century Fox and YouTube. Like I, I lived in LA from 2000, was it 2013 to like 2018. My brother actually worked on the like 20, 21st Century Fox, like on the Fox lot. He worked at 21 Laps um, for Sean Levy. Like pre pre Stranger Things, and was like working with him like through Stranger Things and all that. And Sean was at my brother's wedding, um, and and just like just so 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 kind of just anyway. That's my you know some I got a bunch of friends that from like the 21st Century Fox sort of family. And then I was working with you know I had left Boston, gone to LA, had pitched a business plan to be a marketing kind of go to market and um, communications. Uh, consultant for the Silicon Beach, sort of burgeoning Silicon Beach startup community and partnered with a San Francisco-based agency and and successfully kind of opus, opened and ran that office for a bit um, before I before I uh, moved to Fabric Media. And and when I when I moved to LA and started working with companies, I was working with like Epoxy, which was the you know Hootsuite for social video that was like the kind of command center that all the multi-channel networks were using to like take their videos, pop it in epoxy and then spit out derivative assets on all the platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like learning a lot and, and working a lot and sort of like the, the business side of sort of the economics that were taking shape in YouTube. And I'm still doing a lot of that today. So um, just, you know, a couple, so to the extent that, you know, we go back and forth a bit on, on what you were doing at, at YouTube and, and sort of the, the cross pollination of media and technology, um, that's the kind of that I live at the bleeding edge of that, which I love. And, and, and it sounds like you have quite a bit of experience there, but I'm just curious um, about the experience you had in, in LA in, in particular, but certainly on the West coast and, and, and certainly in Ohio and other places then, and then ultimately like, you know, sharing that I think is really interesting because you know, the community here in Boston um, gets to understand just like the, the range of perspective you offer to 
you know, young budding, you know, in, you know, in particular first time entrepreneurs that um, can really benefit um, from all those different experiences that you've had. Yeah. So that, you know, after my experience, it's a, the consulting experience um, gave me one, the digital media bug, right? I knew that I yep. wanted to just dive deep into how we were going to create, consume, distribute information in the future. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to be on the operating side. So I used my experience at business school to transition and and move over to the operating side. My first role was at YouTube and this was shortly after Google had purchased YouTube, um, you know, for $1.6 billion, which at the time people were just aghast at, you know, how they could do that because YouTube made no money. And my, I was hired as the first person to figure out how we were going to make that money. Um, and so launched the first ad product uh, on YouTube. And, you know, I'm dating myself because I mentioned that to a founder the other day and they just couldn't wrap their head around a time when YouTube didn't have ads. But, uh, but it's true. Uh, and so to launch those ad products and you not only got a front row seat to the product manager. And Jen, forgive me. I want to orient, uh, sorry, I want to orient myself and listeners' yeah. brains. So we're talking like 2006, 2007? Two, 2008. Yep. It was early 2008. 2008. Okay. Okay. I just graduated. Yep. All right. Got it. Yeah. So this is like, yep. okay. Got it. So we're in like, we're in like yeah. the and mid to late 2000s. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there, there was like, it was still sort of the Wild West at, at YouTube. I mean, it, and, and so, Launched those first products, um, and and what I realized Zach, was that we all understood technology, but none of us understood media. And so, <laughs> you know, given Very that this different. was two thousand eight, it was yeah. yeah, it was before the cross pollination of Hollywood. And then you have to understand right? because yeah. media is connected to people and consumers and it's B2C. It's so, it's like, there's, there's so many, there's very many distinctly different variables and, 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 users, the B to B to C sort of triangle comes together and you got a lot more to, to figure out. Yeah. And, and frankly, at that point, the media model, the, the big media studios, there was no digital, right? They, right? Their model was distribution to the cable system. Licensing. Over there, right. Over yeah. there was still a big thing. Right. And it was all about rights. Right. So none of us at YouTube understood rights. And it's why all of our supposed partners were suing us, right? Because we put clips up and said, like, well, we're getting you distribution. And they were saying, this is not our model. This is not how we do business. And so right. what I realized was that you know, my goal at the time was really to um, you know, be in the digital media world for the long haul. But I realized that in order to be successful doing that, I needed to understand the traditional business. Um, and so at the time... 21st Century Fox was the only big media company placing big digital bets. And um, I was recruited by one of their executives to come over and run M&A and business development for all of the non-news networks. And so that basically meant mm. uh, launching new digital businesses, buying and scaling you know, startups that we brought, brought in-house, and doing sort of strategy and business development around the traditional business. So while I was there you know, really went deep on all of their retransmission negotiations with all of the MVPDs, the, the cable system. Um, stood up Hulu, stood up a mobile broadcasting network. You know, we, we bought MySpace, which was not a successful acquisition, but sort of just saw 
how to make those bets. Um, and, and really, you know, the, the, what I learned about myself, Zach, is that what I loved was being involved at the earliest stage. So, you know, I loved the digital media world, but what I loved most was that early stage, you know, building companies, working with a really, really nascent startup. I didn't love, you know, scaling something once it was massive or, you know, my goal was not to run a studio. And so that got me thinking about, okay, if I Mm. love working with early stage startups, and this is kind of the metabolism of an early stage startup matches mine. It got me thinking about the, you know, going over to the investment side. And so I, you know, sort of connected the dots to that early experience with my neighbor, Nina, and working at her fund and began thinking about, um, you know, going over to the investment side. And that sort of led me to, to where I am today. Cool. So, and I want to get into January ventures shortly. So what, like, what, what was the transition into venture kind of pre-founding January Ventures, this now intentional transition into venture, and is yeah. that what you were doing in the Midwest? Yeah. So, so there were sort of two options. There were, you know, there are two paths I could take. The first was to go back to San Francisco and you know join right. a venture fund, right? I, you know, that was where coming out of Stanford, that was where I had a really deep network, um, and I talked to a lot of funds and went, you know, got fairly far down that path. At the same time. Um, the other path was radically different, which was moving to the middle of the country and figuring out what I was going to do there. And Mm. the reason that it was moving to the middle of the country to Cleveland, Ohio specifically is that my husband is a serial entrepreneur and he had started, we were um, at Stanford together and he had started an industrial controlled technology company in Cleveland, Ohio, Mm. which is where he's from, but it's also where all of their customers were. So it made sense to be in the middle of the country. And when they, you know, as I was sort of contemplating my next move, they simultaneously raised their Series B from U.S. Venture Partners, um, one of the storied Santo Road uh, venture funds. And, you know, USVP said, like, we'll invest, but we know you're going to be moving out to California in a year. You know, you you just can't build a venture-backable business in the middle of the country. And... Dave then, when he closed the round and hired, you know, half of his team, he recruited them from Silicon Valley, including the VP of engineering at Tesla. And so, you know, when I basically saw through his experience that this really interesting opportunity that piqued my interest got me to say, I'm not going to move back to San Francisco. I'm going to move to the middle of the country and I'm going to step out of an operating role and start investing specifically in companies in the middle of the country. And, you know, mm. one of the things that, that I've realized about myself is like, I get excited about these sort of arbitrage opportunities and going where everyone else isn't. Yep. And, you know, this was, this was 2012. So it was before Mark Kwame and Chris Olson started Drive Capital in Columbus, Ohio. It was before CT did Rise of the Rest. People thought I was insane for one, leaving the West Coast and two, starting an investment fund outside of the West Coast. Um, but, you know, but I did it, right? I'd seen that there were amazing founders in the middle of the country building high-growth, venture-scalable businesses, and no one on the coast was paying attention to them. So I um, started an accelerator and follow-on fund, ran that for six years, kind of cut my teeth as an investor, as a fund manager, made so many mistakes that, you know, in sort of trial by fire, did a lot of things that, that worked out well. You failed um, forward. I sort of found myself. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think have a lot of empathy now for 
the founders that I work with because it was building something from scratch, right? I didn't have a network there. I didn't have, no one knew who I was. Um, So there was a lot of grinding it out, but really realized that I love being involved at that early stage. And so when, you know, the time came again to figure out like, do I double down on what I was doing or do I, you know, think about starting what now has become January, I realized that, you know, for me, continuing to work with early stage founders is really what I love doing and where I think I can be most valuable. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to take a leap of faith and, and guess that January ventures, like January is the start of a new year. It's kind of the new beginnings and to kind of draw on like your arbitrage model mindset when you initially were like, wait, all right, I see, I see everyone dismissing that venture and startups can work in the middle of the country out of Cleveland, Ohio. Well, then I'm going to create a fund and an accelerator here. And then boom, you did it. And then similarly with January Ventures, you're sort of like identifying rightfully that there's a a, a misrepresentation or underrepresentation of, of uh, women and people of color um, getting funded um, certainly as first time entrepreneurs, it's, it's extremely hard for them. I'm going to go and focus there. And so like, so talk to, talk to, talk to me and listeners about that. And then I am curious, like, am I right in assuming that like the, the idea around January ventures is sort of like, it's, it's, it's the start of a new year. It's sort of like new beginnings and sort of uh, new horizons. That, that is exactly right. And I, it like is music to my ears to hear you say that and get that from the name because, uh, as anyone knows who has launched a brand, you hope that the brand story comes through and that's exactly nice. right. It's, I'm a branding guy, the door to the future. I'm a yeah. branding nerd and I love the brand and I get it. And you didn't have awesome. to tell me. So boom. So yeah, it's um, good, good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so that's exactly what, what the brand stands for. And you know, when in 2018, as I was sort of thinking about what was next, the, the data had come out that showed just how little venture dollars women and people of color receive. And I think people knew that it was anecdotally true, but suddenly there was data. Um, and it just like the, the light bulb went off to me, Zach. It's like, oh, this is the biggest opportunity in tech right now. Because frankly, yeah. I had a portfolio that was very diverse. And you know, what, the light bulb that went off for me is that um, as an asset class, underrepresented founders are outperforming despite the fact that they are so undercapitalized. And right. as an investor, that's the type of thing that I want to lean into, right? right? And, you know, the, the interesting thing about venture is that venture capitalists are rewarded for investing in innovation. But the reality is that there's actually been very little innovation in the venture capital model since it started. Um, and, you know, venture is very well suited for a very, very narrow slice of founders, right? And, you know, that that's due to the fact that this is a pattern recognition business. That's how investors underwrite risk. And mm-hmm. that's not going to change. And it's a network business. And a lot of venture capitalists say, you know, you need a warm intro to get to me. And so, so many people are shut out of venture. And our approach in January is to really take a different approach to venture, one that is grounded in access and transparency, which frankly, traditional venture is not known for, uh, to to make what was previously an opaque and exclusive industry much more accessible and open um, because we believe that the next generation of returns is going to be driven by a much more diverse set of founders. Uh, and so, you know, our goal with January is to to be the fund of choice at that early stage and to do things differently, to 
not only attract those founders, but then support them on the back end. Um, and one of the things that we talk a lot about is just friction, right? For the founders that we are focused on, there is so much friction, particularly in the fundraising process, but also in the process of getting their startup off the ground. And so our focus is really on removing that friction, making it easy for founders to find us, right? And actually proactively going out and, and meeting them where they are, mm-hmm. but then removing all the friction on the back end once we are invested to make sure that these founders can build their companies most efficiently. That's great. So you're also built for this world that the pandemic has accelerated where things, you know, we talked about the de- decentralized sort of, or, or de- and democratized kind of access to pathways, but also just kind of the almost unnecessary, like geographic constraints, if you will, that exist when um, folks are more tethered to cities and tethered to offices. And it sounds like your, your mindset is we want to be a magnet for the right underrepresented founders anywhere they are and correct me if I'm wrong, like say in the United States or prep and, and we will go to them. And we'll go to there. We'll we'll meet with them semi regularly, where they have where they best are um, in the headspace and are are uh, sort of executing against the the model that we believe in. We've done our due diligence on, and we are now like active agents in helping sort of um, in them sort of achieve their their best potential. Yeah, that's right. And so to clarify, we invest across the U.S. and Europe. So okay. my partner is based in London. Um, and, and you know, so we have been a distributed team from the start. We used to get a lot of questions about that pre-COVID. Now, you know, no one, no one bats an eye. Now but you're on trend. That, you know, we, yeah, you were ahead yeah, of the curve. Exactly. Yeah, now everyone's caught up. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so we invested early in our processes to make sure that, you know, both from our operating model, but also our sourcing and our diligence and our portfolio support, that we were set up to do that in a distributed way, both you know, in terms of where we as partners are located, but also where our portfolio is located. And, you know, what I'll say, Zach, is I am a firm believer in innovation clusters. And so yep. if you know, th- what we look for is, you know, when we're looking at a company that is in a certain geography, like why does it make sense for them to be there? You know, what's, what is it about being there that's going to give them an edge? And it might be that there's some amazing technologist that's there that, you know, even if they're not in the heart of New York or Boston or San Francisco or LA, like there is someone there who is world-class at what they need and they've decided to build the company there, or there's access to some of their partners or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, You know, I have to say, like, if you're building a digital media company in Cleveland, for instance, like that's not the easiest list because it Mm -hmm. is so low, you know, so geolocated to LA. But if you're building an insure tech company, Cleveland, Ohio is a great place to do it because there's so much legacy insurance talent, right? So that's, that's a lot of what we look for. Um, but we're, we fundamentally believe that, you know, as I said at the top, this, the mindset of innovation has permeated, you know, everywhere in the U.S. It's the same thing in Europe. And so, you know, we're open to any geography uh, and, and are comfortable meeting founders remotely. So we obviously love to meet them in person, but that's not an essential part of our process and, and was even the case pre-COVID. Interesting. So, so Jen, talk to us a bit about some of those investments that you have made and some of those companies in the portfolio that you 
I've probably recently and probably still currently are meeting with virtually, but hopefully soon we'll we'll get to meet um, meet with IRL again soon. Yeah. So um, one of our yeah, you know, this is a hard question, Zach, because it does feel like sort of picking and choosing between your children. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, one of our investments that um, that I love talking about, particularly in this context of remote work, is a company called Simba. Uh, S-Y-M-B-A, and we actually sourced them through uh, one of the events that we stood up post-pandemic. Um, so we've always been open to cold pitches. Founders can find our cold pitch form on our website. It takes less than two minutes. Again, we want to be accessible. Um, and so, you know, we've seen something like five to 6,000 pitches come through there. But what we realized post-pandemic was that so there was so much more friction for founders in the fundraising process. So we did a survey right after the pandemic, found that uh, 70% of the early stage founders in our network were fundraising or were, were expecting to be fundraising in the next six to nine months. And 60% of those founders felt like fundraising opportunities were drying up. And so we launched this event called Pitch Collective, where we take our deal flow and syndicate it out to other you know, VCs that we collaborate with. Um, and so Simba was actually one of the companies that we met through this event. Um, we invested in their pre-seed round and what they, they started as a way to enable remote internships with the, with an eye towards how to make internships more accessible. Um, and it's two really amazing founders who had done remote internships and had sort of experienced the power that that, that is right. Not everyone can, is in a position to, go and do an in-person internship. And many companies have a cap on how many in-person interns they can, they can have. And so by relaxing those constraints, you can really scale an internship program and give people access and develop talent. What they realized, so they launched pre-pandemic shortly before uh, and had really great engagement from their early customers. But suddenly their customers began to ask them like, we love your platform for interns, can we use it for our remote employees? Can we use it for the hybrid model that, you know, we're going into now that, you know, we're, we're going to be in the office, but we're not always going to be in the office. Um, and so they have just seen an explosion of growth uh, and are, you know, not only just focused on interns, but really any employee, both in terms of the onboarding, the retention, the engagement, the project management. Um, so it's been really fun to see, this team lean into the moment and lean into the opportunity. Um, this is awesome. By the way. I'm on the site and I'm like, I think I may need to use Simba. Like this is really yeah, it's, it's I, amazing. I, as someone who hired during the pandemic, like I've hired a wonderful woman down in North Carolina that graduated college a year ago and have like, I could use a more intentional platform to design and foster um, that, you know, her, you know, her, her sort of like career growth, um, beyond like whatever, you know, processes I can digitally put into place. Um, well, I got a million other things going on. Like this is, uh, this is fantastic. So th th this is a really, we'll have to make sure we include this one in the, um, in the article. Cause I think this would be very helpful to a lot of certainly companies locally and beyond good stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's a good, you know, we, we, we invest primarily in work and productivity, fintech and digital health. And so, you know, Simba's been that, that work and productivity space, again, mostly companies that are selling to other businesses or enterprise. Um, but, you know, we, we love these sorts of 
of, of companies, right, where there's just one real land and expand opportunity or, you know, some of our other companies, like the company called Athena, which is modern compliance training. Um, and actually in the, in the pre-questions that you had asked about, like, you know, D&I training at some of the large companies that I've been at. And the truth of the matter is, like, I can't remember what I did in those trainings. And the founders, um, these you know, wonderful founders of Athena, they hooked me in their pitch when they asked me to, you know, recall the specifics of my last corporate training. And the only thing I could recall was that I had been on, a, you know, a, a conference call and was simultaneously clicking through the training because my HR partner had told me that I had, you know, had to complete it by the end of the day. Um, and they're really bringing compliance training into, you know, the modern century um, and doing it in a way that's both culturally, culturally relevant and engaging for employees. Um, you know, if you think about it, something like sexual harassment training, DNI training, you know, email phishing training, financial compliance, these are all become major strategic issues for companies, but the training hasn't evolved. And so as an employee, your CEO is saying like, these are major pillars of, you know, our, our corporate culture, but you get this terrible training that you're half paying attention to, like there's a real dissonance. Um, and so, you know, it's been fun again, not a sexy space, but something that reaches has the potential to reach every single employee in this country. And, and that really gets me excited. Amazing. Really cool. And they're not your favorites. They're just a couple, you're just sharing a couple things and we'll share That's the right. full list. We, we would be yeah. here. We'd have like a 24 hour <laughs> podcast if you asked me to talk about them all because I could. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I did also want to share with listeners that you recently started a podcast. So talk about the name of that and just the in fo- the focus and and I think it will it sounds like it's going to be a great resource to the community. Yeah, I appreciate you you asking that. So the podcast is called Ready Set, uh, and the goal is to go behind the scenes of starting a company and really get into you know how founders were feeling, what they were thinking about, um, what were some of the things that they did first. And, and, you know, laser focus on that, that early stage, both the personal and the professional to get, you know, to, to get a sense for what they did to prepare and how it felt to take the leap and start a company. And my goal with the podcast is really to inspire prospective founders to, to go out and start companies or, you know, be a resource to people who are in those early stage trenches. And, that one of the things that you said earlier that really resonated was, you know, when we were talking about people who had been influential in our lives or even, you know, um, sports figures or people in popular culture or leaders right. where you look at what they've accomplished and it's like, Oh my gosh, they make it look so easy. Yeah. And so many, you know, I think there, there are so many great podcasts uh, about startups and we live in such a rich time of, or it's a time of such rich content, which is really great for founders. But a lot of the content is very shiny and it's, you know, focused on founders who have already achieved a threshold level of success. And it's about what's happening, you know, at the time that they're going public or they're raising rounds from Tiger Global or, you know, everything is up and to the right. And what I want to do is like take some of that varnish off. And, you know, the, the, if you listen to the podcast, the founders get really vulnerable and we're not going back to what they did as kids. And we're not talking about what they're doing today. It's really in that tightly bound period where they're thinking about starting a company. They've just made the leap 
and they're launching the first product, making their first hire, and maybe thinking about paying themselves, like what was happening then? And it's messy, it's vulnerable, uh, and it's really interesting. That's super cool. Well, Brene Brown would certainly endorse it if you're a Brene Brown fan. Um, <laughs> she's taught me how to embrace my vulnerability. Um, that also speaks to like uh, earlier, we we're talking about the institutions in the Commonwealth that are increasingly sort of, you know, tethering to the venture community. And it, it sounds like Ready Set is just an incredible resource to the those universities that are, you know, nurturing the next breed of sort of these first time sort of student entrepreneurs. Um, and that's, that's such a nice, such a nice tight focus around sort of that period of time of all the challenges that are faced. So that hopefully, and that, that's kind of the mindset I think with, with my mindset toward podcasts in general is sort of like find that sort of that niche, that focus. And and then therefore over time, you can kind of just, you know, there's going to be tons of evergreen value. Um, you talk about, you know, sort of the content that you're creating, like that's, that's a, that's a valuable resource, you know, conversations you have with founders and the challenges they faced in, you know, 2014, 2016, 2018, doesn't matter. Like those, those stand up, um, those will stand the test of time as just like valuable, um, insight so that hopefully if folks do, um, arrive, um, arrive or, or stumble upon, uh, the ready set podcast, you know, they can, they can try to, um, limit the amount of mistakes they do because we are all going to fail forward. Um, but if we could get some, some shortcuts or, or some tips from those who have been through it, uh, before us, I mean, is, is that not how we kind of evolve as, you know, as fellow sort of, um, uh, as mankind as sort of like fellow sort of, you know, common citizen. So, so I really, I love it. I'm, I'm really stoked, um, that you're doing that and, and definitely want to make sure we like link, link to it and, and, and share it, um, in the, in the written article that we'll put out as well for this. Yeah, that's awesome. And what I would say is if, you know, any of your listeners have, have suggestions for people that they want to hear from, or, you know, people whose stories they think really need to be told, um, people can feel free to DM me on Twitter. I'm at JKK. Uh, and would love to hear any suggestions, particularly founders here in Boston. Awesome. We'll make that one of the call to actions when we're doing some of our like promo tweets and like Instagram posts for this. Oh, great. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Nice. So, um, before we go here, what, what is the, what does the noon door for family get into as, as spring is, you know, it, it, flowers are blooming and the weather's getting better. Um, what are you, what are you excited about this, this spring, this summer? Um, to do with your family here in New England? Yeah, so it's this is one of my favorite times in New England. Um, and last spring, uh, I think as many people did when we were confined to our home, we put in a garden uh, in our side yard. And my my husband uh, is, a, is a skilled gardener and sort of led, led the way for us. But we have just started our plants inside a couple weeks ago. Uh, so this weekend, I fingers crossed, we're done with frost and snow. Uh, we need mm-hmm. to check the weather. But the, the tentative plan this weekend is to actually get the plants in the ground outside. Um, and it's, it's such a great activity for us as a family. Again, I said you know, that I have yeah. two little kids. They get so much joy from seeing the plants you know, grow from like a little tiny sprout to you know, a carrot or a piece of broccoli uh, or the cherry tomatoes that they can eat. And it's also, as a parent, a great way to get them to be excited about eating their vegetables. 
So, so that is where we will log a lot of time this spring uh, as we try to get the plants up and growing and healthy and, and uh, bearing fruit this summer. Beautiful. The, uh, the Servideo family will be doing something similar on Saturday. Saturday looks like it's sixties and sunny and looks like we're in the clear on frost and, uh, and, yeah. and we're looking to get some, get some things planted as well. So the, the, the plant, the, 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 the migration of plants from, from inside the, the Noondorfer home to, to the yard, um, Sounds like sounds like sounds like a, a good time. And I, my daughter, similarly, she's four, just like your daughter is, and um, or she's about to be four. I shouldn't rush her aging, yeah. right? I'm going to regret that someday. Um, she'll be four <laughs> in July. She um, she absolutely loves, yeah, loves like seeing flowers grow and bloom. And like this morning, she was like, "Daddy, look, like look at the tree." look like it's blue like look at the leaves they're coming the leaves are coming because you can see the little buds of the leaves coming on the trees in the yard yeah. and it's just so so cute so well, well jen this has been a real pleasure I'm, I'm excited to share this with the community i'm I'm super grateful for having connected with you and in this newfound friendship i'm looking forward to meeting in person at, at some point and ho- hopefully not the too, too distant the future and um i just i wish you all the success with january ventures and um and and have you know, just have a wonderful day and enjoy the enjoy the beautiful spring with your family. Thank you, Zach. This was such a great discussion, uh, and I'm excited to you know work work more together and see where all of that goes. And yes, to meeting in person, uh, both you know us and excited to see everyone in Boston soon. Wonderful, sounds great. We'll we'll talk soon, Jen. You take care. Okay, thanks, Zach. All right, thanks. Bye. Cheers, Bye. Boston.